are listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are a community in Madison, Wisconsin, who gathers to worship, to learn, to serve, and to grow together in God's love. Please visit us online at www.covenantmadison.org, where you can find information about Covenant Ministries, as well as links to our online worship services and sermon podcasts. Be to God for the words of Scripture. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The word of God for the people of God. Amos chapter 5, verse 24, is one of the most frequently quoted scripture passages. Alongside at least these three other passages, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, Jeremiah 29, 11, often used in graduation cards and ceremonies, and 1 Corinthians 13, 4, used at weddings and on February 14th, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. Many preachers and public figures have also used Amos chapter 5, verse 24 in sermons and other types of addresses. Five years ago, 29 million people in the United States and over 2 billion people worldwide viewed the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The presiding bishop, Michael Curry, from the United States, cited Amos chapter 5, verse 24, as he officiated the ceremony in Windsor Castle when he shared about the power of redemptive love and its potential to change the world. Bishop Curry invited the royal couple, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, along with billions watching on televisions, computers, tablets, and smartphones all over the world to imagine what homes and families and neighborhoods and communities could look like when love is the way. Quote, when love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. Bishop Curry understood that morning that he was preaching to two audiences, the 600 or so persons celebrating at the wedding in Windsor Castle, Though we've later learned from documentaries, podcasts, and memoirs that not everyone was in a celebratory mood that morning, and the billions more watching all over the world. 55 years before Bishop Curry in the summer of 1963, a 34-year-old black Baptist minister from Atlanta also referred to Amos chapter 5, 24. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. evoked the verse in his address to over 200,000 people during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. As he stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. King challenged all Americans to remember the promises of freedom and equality that then U.S. President Abraham Lincoln had ushered in with the Emancipation Proclamation. 100 years had passed, but Afri African Americans remained, in Dr. King's words, crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. Dr. King implored his fellow citizens to acknowledge these injustices and to do something about it, to en enact changes to end them. 
He noted that critics often asked what it would take for him and other colleagues in the civil rights movement to be satisfied. Martin, what will it take for you all to be satisfied? Dr. King responded that they would not relent until African-Americans had equal access to voting, employment, education, and public facilities. King concluded this part of his speech, quote, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Just as Dr. King was speaking to two audiences, the marchers with him in DC and the larger American public, the message of Amos 5 is meant for both its immediate hearers and the wider inhabitants across the Northern Kingdom in the eighth century BCE. Israelites then lived in a milieu of robust public worship with elaborate rituals and extravagant festivals. They therefore anticipated and celebrated the day of the Lord as the ultimate moment when God would give them victory over all of their enemies. This phrase, day of the Lord, only occurs in prophetic texts, and likely its first and earliest appearance is in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, is therefore an utterly staggering message that catches the immediate audience off guard. Amos reverses expectations and warns that the day of the Lord is not going to be a celebratory moment, but instead is, it is going to be a calamitous reckoning where the people of God, the people of Israel, will have to account in earlier in Amos chapter 5, verse 11, for their sins of the economic exploitation of small farmers. And verse 12, callous disregard of the poor. Amos compares the day of the Lord to two frightening, yet I think somewhat funny, hypothetical scenarios. It, it is as if verses 18 through 20 are kind of the children's time of his sermon. He says, hey, kids, imagine if there is a person who is running away from a lion only to be met by a bear. And then the person escapes both the lion and the bear, finds a refuge, finds a place, a dwelling where they can rest, and puts the hand against the wall, perhaps to catch the breath, and is bitten by a snake. What a bummer that all of these, are, these things are happening to this person. And then, I guess Amos ends the kid's time there and says, ah, blessed all the kids. He launches into verses 21 through 23. Uh, this why the wider audience of Israel must grapple with God's searing indictments. Amos observes that too many Israelites are practicing insincere and incomplete religion that disconnects civic morality from public worship. In verse 21, the use of two different Hebrew verbs, to hate, sane, in the Hebrew, to despise, ma'as, in the Hebrew, underscore God's fierce displeasure with hollow outward piety. God rejects seven aspects of corporate worship in verses 21 through 23, from material offerings to melodious songs. The use of the number seven is employed throughout the scripture to symbolize completion. In Genesis chapter two, seven days. In Leviticus chapter 25, the seventh year is a Sabbath year. In Revelations chapter eight, there are seven apocalyptic seals. Here, the rejection of seven signifies the totality of God's denunciation of Israel's failure to connect their public worship with their daily ethic. In more contemporary parlance, 
I can think of two words that evoke God's holy anger. Roughly 10 years ago, the comedians and actors Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers were co-hosts of Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. They often did a segment called Really with Seth and Amy in which they incredulously offered commentary on current events with the sarcastic use of the word really. They reunited on Seth Meyers' late-night talk show last year to remark on the emerging big business of space travel with Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and others. Seth began, quote, Really, billionaires, this is what you're going to do with the unprecedented fortunes and influences race to outer space? Amy continued, quote, You know who's not going to space? Any woman. Really? Yeah, we're staying down here because we got to fix all the things, end quote. (laughs) Returning to kind of what's going on today, I thought really is a word maybe from 10 years ago. Here's even a more contemporary word that I think captures what's going on. This word, bruh. (laughs) Any parent of a tween or a teen has likely received this word either audibly or in a text message from their child. The best way this parent can explain the word bruh is that it is a young person's synonym of really. Bruh, my teacher assigned me three free response essays this week. Or bruh, the internet went out at my house for like two hours last night and I was so bored. Returning to the ancient Near Eastern context of Amos chapter 5, I don't believe Christians need interpret this passage as God's fury at corporate worship, congregational worship, and public worship, like that all of it is bunk. That's not what is happening here. One common theme across the prophetic literature is God's desire for faithful living alongside faithful worship. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, learn to do what is right, Seek justice, defend the oppressed. Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Micah chapter 6, 8, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. In Amos chapter 5, verse 24, justice and righteousness are not presented as alternatives to replace festivals and worship services. Instead, God's anger, God's really, or God's bruh, is a call for people of faith to increase their attention to what is happening outside their place of worship and actively work toward reforming societal injustices. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, aren't we taught to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness? I checked, and I don't think the verse says seek second, seek third, seek fourth, or seek when there is an opening in your Google calendar, the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. It is as if I'm looking through my phone, I think next Thursday at 3 o'clock, I can do that. But I have a hard out, hard stop at 3.30. That's not what is happening here. Here, Amos chapter 5, verse 24, employs familiar yet familiar yet vivid agrarian imagery for an ancient Near Eastern audience. They get it. When Amos is talking about rushing rivers and surging streams, they know that this captures the vitality and necessity of righteousness and justice. Because these images of water are simultaneously breathtaking and life-giving for farmers who are trying to tend fields and grow crops. 
Even today, I know that these vivid agrarian metaphors resonate in the great state of Wisconsin. I did a little bit of homework about your agriculture. And the message is the same both then and now. The worshipers of God are being confronted. The sacred songs that you sing must lead to defending the oppressed, caring for the earth, and working to construct a better world for all to flourish. As Christians, the entirety of Scripture teaches us that we don't seek justice and righteousness in order to earn God's salvation. Rather, we do so as the grateful response to the gift of salvation that we are given through Jesus Christ. For we are taught that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and we are therefore God's peacemakers and God's children, blessed when we do good and extend mercy as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Yet the teachings in Amos 5 and Matthew 5 remind us of the gospel paradox, that God's call is also God's challenge, that God's promises are also God's demands. The gospel brings comfort to the afflicted, yet it also brings affliction to the comfortable. The Puritan prayer, the Valley of Vision, begins with the proclamation that our Lord Jesus is simultaneously high and holy as well as meek and lowly and invites God's children to learn by paradox that the way down is the way up and that to be low is to be high. And it teaches that the valley, not the mountaintop, is the place of vision. In the Psalms, the word thirst is used at least twice in 42 and 63 when describing how the human soul long seeks and pursues after God. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches the large crowd in front of him and us today that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness with the same pangs that we feel when our stomachs are empty and our mouths are dry. For this seminary professor, it is quite humbling to encounter the primal active verbs that Jesus is using there. Because the verbs I use are read, study, analyze, write, proofread, edit, and revise for hunger, uh, for justice and righteousness. Yet here we see it is to hunger and thirst. Uh, when I think about it, you know, when I'm hungry, I can't do anything else until I have some food in my mouth and my stomach is no longer grumbling. When I'm thirsty, the first thing I want to do is find something to drink. In the same way, what would it be for the people of God, for a community of faith, to hunger and to thirst for justice and righteousness? I can't do anything else until justice is met and righteousness is unfolding. Therefore, when God calls us to be a beloved community, God challenges us to drive out the sins and injustices that prevent the rivers of justice and streams of righteousness from rolling down. Dr. King's call for racial equality, his dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the children of former slaves and the children of former slaveholders will be able to sit down together. It's also a challenge for us to confront the histories, legacies, and present-day realities of racial discrimination in our city and our nation. It is at one level, here's a scenario. If I leave a bakery with two loaves of bread and on my way home, I encounter a person who is hungry and has no bread and is looking for bread to feed this person and their family. What is God's call for me in that moment? Certainly God's call for me in that moment is to give this person one of my loaves of bread. Really, it's probably to give this person both loaves of bread because I have access and I can get more. But after I do that, 
I believe God's call and God's challenge for me is to ask, why doesn't this person have bread in the first place? Why doesn't this person have access, to, have access to daily bread? Why doesn't this person have access to clean water? Why doesn't this person have access to the honor and dignity of fair wages and employment to provide for themselves and their family? What are the structures? What are the systems? What are the laws? What are the policies? What are the histories and what are the legacies that are preventing this person from having access to a good life? And what can I do about that? How can I participate in God's kingdom and righteousness work so that this person can have access to those things? In 1896, one Presbyterian ruling elder and Sunday school teacher, John Marshall Harland, I believe he did what he could to answer God's call. When Harland wasn't at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., he was at the U.S. Supreme Court where he served as one of its nine justices. Harlan grew up in a wealthy family of enslavers in Kentucky, fought for the Union Army in the Civil War, and then practiced the law in Louisville until he was appointed the state's attorney general. In 1871, he renounced his previous defense of slavery, supported Reconstruction, and advocated for the civil rights of African Americans. In 1877, at the age of 44, he was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Harlan took great pride in teaching Bible study every Sunday, and he regularly turned down invitations to Sunday evening social engagements because of church activities. At a banquet honoring Harland, one of the other justices, David Brewer, teased Harlan in a toast by imagining that Harlan could only find sweet sleep at night with one hand on the Bible and the other on the Constitution. In his 19th year on the bench, Harlan and his colleagues presided over a case in which an African-American man from New Orleans, Homer Plessy, contested a state law that segregated rail cars on trains. A white judge, John Howard Ferguson, upheld Plessy's arrest and the legality of the state law. Plessy's lawyers appealed the case, first to the Supreme Court of Louisiana and then to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court also upheld the constitutionality of legal segregation in an almost unanimous decision. The lone dissenter was John Marshall Harland. Harland argued that the Constitution was colorblind and treats all citizens as equal before the law in respect to civil rights. Though Harland lost the case, his dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson became a crucial part of the legal reasoning to end racial segregation in every subsequent case including Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, because Harlan in this, in this dissent had provided a legal precedent. Several scholars and historians observed that Harlan lost the case, but he won history. As the people of God, you and I also have an important part to play in this city and this country's ongoing struggle for justice and righteousness. It may not be as big as John Marshall Harlan or the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but I believe it is no less important because we too must believe in the redemptive power of God's love. As Bishop Curry preached five years ago in England, we too must believe when God's love is the way, we can be a faithful neighbor. When God's love is the way, we can welcome the stranger. When God's love is the way, 
we can work in the, we can participate in the work of making it a bigger table. When God's love is the way, we can end racial discrimination. When love is the way, we too can see justice rolling down like the waters and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Thanks be to God.